Hello and welcome to the Mind and Soul Christmas podcast. Uh, this month we are broadcasting from the Fusion Conference in Oxford, a seminar for students about the mental health of people at university. Great to see you, all you guys here. Fantastic. Thanks for coming along and being brave enough to engage with your uh, mental health and uh, with your emotional well-being. Whenever I mention that at a seminar, at a conference, everyone, a few people start running for the hills thinking, I didn't know I was running, I think I was going to a mental health conference. I don't know what if anyone saw me there. It's uh, always a bit frightening. But I want to say um, it's fantastic to be here. I'm Will van der Hart. I'm um, one of the co-directors of Mind and Soul. And this is Rob, Rob Waller. That's good, wasn't it? It looks like I'm interviewing, but I'm not really, because it's actually not doing anything amazing. <laughs> um, so me and Rob run Mind and Soul, and Rob started it about two years before I came on board. Um, he's a consultant psychiatrist, so he knows what's going on in my mind, and I'm an Anglican vicar, so I have got a clue. I just pray about it. Um, and uh, what we're passionate about is about um, emotional wholeness, really, and I guess what that means to us is a whole sense of uh, you are loved by God, your body, uh, your mind, and your soul. And if you like, often as Christians we can separate everything out and say, oh yeah, I go to the doctor to get my body fixed, and I go to church to get my, uh, my mind fixed and my spirit fixed, which is a great idea, but actually Jesus treats us much more holistically than that. He treats the mind, the body, and the spirit as one. So we've got this whole concept of the mind and soul, and we're about uh, engaging with your mind. Rob. Just tell you a little bit about the national, the national picture with student mental health. Um, we've done some sort of surveys on universities around the country, and they're coming out with some pretty horrifying statistics. Like, for example, around about 15% of students are probably going to access their university counselling service at some point. Probably five or so percent of students are going to self-harm at some point during their university career. Um, in any freshers' week at a fairly large university, probably about. 10 or 15 people are going to have the beginning of a psychotic illness like schizophrenia that's not drug-related, and then a whole bunch of other people are going to have either a psychotic episode or a breakdown that, that perhaps is more, more drug-related. So significant mental health problems are starting at university. A whole bunch of different reasons for that, um, partly because people are away from perhaps their families, they're in new environments, there's a whole bunch of stress to perform pressure to perform, and people are away from some of the things that perhaps normally keep them healthy, like um, friends or support structures. Everything's new and everything's different. Um, so Will's just going to talk a little bit about um, some of his personal experiences about working as a, as, a, as a sort of church leader with students with mental health problems. Well, I just want to say again, if you just come in late, you know, it's, it's fantastic to have you all here. I just want you all to give yourself a big pat on the back for being here, because one of the key things that's problematic about being a person in our society is that talking about mental health issues or emotional health issues uh, is pretty, is pretty um, kind of stigmatising. So people think, oh, you know what, I don't want to say anything about mental health because as soon as I mention mental health, everyone will think I'm mental. <laughs> the trouble is that if you mention mental health, actually you're probably a good way towards not being mental because actually engaging with your mental health is one of the most important things that you can do. So you need, to, you need to actually realise that actually that being here is an important step towards the safeguarding of your mental and emotional health. Now, there's some aspects of mental health which Rob knows an awful lot about, which are, if you like, m which, are, which are more difficult to control because they come from um, various physiological changes in the brain. But many of them, actually, uh, particularly within the student remit, which are stress-related often, um, are actually, they're, 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 there's new techniques we can use to actually maintain our health. Now, if you're a guy here, I want to say particularly well done for being here. Because guys, it seems, have a huge stigma. There's even greater stigma about engaging with, with your mental or emotional health. Um, guys seem to think that girls sit around talking about how they feel all the time, but if they talk about how they feel, there's a serious problem. So you mustn't talk about how you feel if you're a guy. Actually, talking about how you feel is absolutely essential to emotional wellness. And, and community, which is what this is, is also an incredible tool towards emotional wellness. Rob's going to say a bit more about that uh, in a minute. But my experience of student mental health has been really interesting. I was an undergraduate at Cambridge, and, um, and I, I got really stressed. But I didn't know I was getting really stressed. I thought I was one of the really chilled out students. 
Um, but actually, I realised that I was, uh, when I look back on my experience, me and Rob were friends back at Cambridge, and he was the sober one. I was the drunk one. And I, I, was, I was the drunk one most of the time, I think, because I was actually self-medicating, and lots of students do that. The lifestyle itself is really chaotic. So the orderliness of your family structures, which help to keep you emotionally healthy, are actually taken away. Now, if you think about things that keep you emotionally well, they're often uh, structures, solid structures, like the family, like the fact that when you were at school, come in guys, just, just squeeze in, no problem. When you're at school, you know, you've got a timetable that tells you about where you should be and when you should be there. And actually, you go to sleep sometime around 11 o'clock, and you wake up every day sometime around 7 or 8 o'clock. Now, that's all very healthy. Go to university, and you take away all of those structures. Somehow, suddenly, you're waking up at 11 o'clock, and you're going to bed at 7 a.m. Things are going slightly wrong. Now, all those healthy structures are sort of taken away from you. And actually, you also get into uh, this exhaustive pattern of partying and drinking and overeating or undereating. And lots of those chaotic lifestyle changes actually have a strong effect on your emotional and mental stability. Now, I remember um, getting really strangled up with this idea that I was, I was getting really ill. And I was actually doing a lot of exercise at the time. And I started getting all these funny feelings, headaches and tingly feelings in my hands and aching feelings down my back. And I remember um, it was before the internet, so you couldn't kind of go and Google all your symptoms. Um, but I, I remember um, my sister was a medical student, and I used to ask her, oh, yeah, what, 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 about, what happens if you... Um, oh, we've got a screensaver on. What happens if, uh, you know... She said to me sometimes, something like, oh, yeah, if you get tingly feelings in your hands and feet, you've probably got a MS. And I remember thinking, oh, no, I'm going to die and having a massive spin-out. And I went through this whole, oh, my goodness. Come in, come in, come in. I went, I went through this massive spin-out about, um, you know, how are you going to deal with this? We're just going to have to sort of squish down here at the front. How are you going to deal with this? And um, the trouble is that actually, oh, my goodness. We might just need to stand at the back. If you can stand at the back, great. Fantastic. This was a bit of a mistake. <laughs> if you're listening to this recording, we've just got about another 150 people come in here, so we're all going slightly mental. Great. You just stand along the back, that'd be great. Maybe down that side, fantastic. <coughs> it's a full house. So, what, so what, what we're saying is that when you get to uni, you start to become anxious and stressed. The chaotic changes in your lifestyle affect how you think and feel. And it's easy, isn't it, to get wrapped up in this whole idea that something's wrong with me, something's wrong with them, something's wrong with this world, and actually get tied up in what we call neurosis. You become neurotic. You begin to worry. You get tired and overtired. The work is stressing you. The experience is stressing you. And all the changes stress you. Now, it's not surprising to me now as a church leader and as a student leader of some years that so many of my students have come to me and said, Will, you know what, I'm really struggling. I, I, I feel I, I can't sleep at night. Um, I wake up and I'm shaking. I've been having panic attacks. Uh, and it's suddenly this terrible fear comes over me. Or I've been sick or I'm feeling depressed. I'm not sure how to cope. And you know, often they'll say to me, oh, they'll come forward for prayer on a Sunday and say, oh, you know, I, I'm feeling depressed, will you pray for me? And you think, yeah, I will pray for you, but their expectation is that as soon as you pray, their depression is gone, or their anxiety is gone, and now now completely free. Now, what we're saying in mind and soul is that, is that we believe that Jesus brings real freedom, but that freedom comes both through prayer and through engaging with the right psychological processes and lifestyle changes to maintain healthy health. You see, I had a, I had a girl um, last year who, who, who was actually suicidal and attempted to commit suicide twice. Now, when we talked at some length, which we did several times, she was living a party lifestyle which began at 11pm and finished at 6am. And she was living that lifestyle, a nocturnal lifestyle, for periods of months at a time. Now, it's not surprising to me or to others that she got herself into a place where she was feeling suicidal. But be very careful about saying things like she got herself into the place where. Because mental health isn't all about what we do, it's also about how our mind works. So we need to care for our minds, but we need to choose to do that and also engage with the fact that our minds are extremely complex and delicate and they can misfire at times. So it's not just all about you, 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 you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do something else. It's all about mindfully caring for yourself, 
realising that your mind is delicate and part of your body, which is extremely complex, the most complex part of your physiology. And actually that needs to be cared for and loved, and it is its own, its own character, if you like, and it needs to be really carefully tended. So you need to tend your mind as a student in order to get the best from it, but also to care for it in the long term. Rob? Sure. Right, so what we thought, we wanted, just to give you an outline of where we're sort of going over the next little while, we wanted to end up with a big chunk of question and answer time at the end. Um, but we also wanted to talk a little bit about the, the loving your uni theme and uh, one of the ways that we can love our uni. Oh come in, guys, come in, we can just squeeze in. Fairly soon, just squeeze in. There's loads of floor space down the front here. Any bit, I'm going to induce a panic attack in someone who's agoraphobic. Have we got any volunteers? In here. <laughs> okay. So what? While these guys are just coming in, we want you to just get into twos and threes, because I think most of you, if I said to you, what would you do to keep yourself physically healthy? You might be able to come up with some ideas. And if you stop your average person in the street and said to them, what would you do to keep yourself physically healthy? You'd probably get a whole bunch of responses. So. What, what kind of things do we usually say keep ourselves physically healthy? Just shout some out. Exercise, swimming, yep. Eating well, eat, what, eating what well? Eating lots of McDonald's? Eating lots of kebabs. So lots of spinach, five a day, someone's saying. So a big government campaign saying we should eat five portions of fruit and vegetables a day. Yeah, what other things keep us physically fit? Sleep, yep, yep. Water, yeah, whole load of different things, jogging, going down the gym. Okay, what we want you to do is just get into groups of, of three or four and perhaps ask a slightly different question, and that is, what can you do to make yourself mentally healthy, okay? And the, the only rule is, you're not allowed to say, I'm going to keep myself mentally healthy by not, by not getting pissed all the time, okay? So, for example, we know that alcohol causes problems in the brain. That's a negative thing. So I don't want you to say, I'm going to keep myself healthy by avoiding one, two, three, four, whatever it is. I want to know what you're actually going to do to keep yourself physically healthy. So it's not I don't eat kebabs, but it's I do eat five portions of fruit and veg a day. So what kind of things can we do to keep ourselves emotionally healthy, just in groups of three or four? Just turn around. Okay, someone, go for it. Someone next to you, because we don't need to move too much here. So. <laughs> can we pause? Yeah. Okay, let's get some feedback from you about what you choose to do to stay emotionally healthy. So, um, let's call out some, some ideas, please. Sorry? Brain games. Oh, you've been watching that. Yeah, I've seen Nicole Kidman do that too. Uh, I don't think that actually does anything for emotional health though. I think I'd probably go mad if I was playing one of those things too much. Someone else? Sleeping, we've had, yep. Being open. Okay, we'll talk more about that in a moment. Spending time with community, friends and family. Excellent, yep. Laughing, a, a very good medicine, hello. Uh, self-image, self healthy self-image, okay, yep. Planning rest. Sorry? Planning some rest. Planning some rest, great. Spending time with yourself. Giving yourself some time, spending time with yourself, Challenging great. Your Challenging your limitations, that sounds exciting. <laughs> um, great, some more? Keeping organised, that's quite healthy, yep. Crying when you feel like crying, staying emotionally connected, excellent, yep. Going to the GP when you think something's wrong. Great. Practicing positivity. That sounds very zen. I'm not sure about that one. Okay. Great. Okay, so a few ideas. Anyone else? Talking about stuff. Have you noticed there's a bit of a theme to all these? They sound a little bit airy-fairy, don't they? They do, but I think that's great. I think there's a, there's sense, there's a sense of weirdness about this, when we're talking about actively, what are we going to choose to do to stay healthy, it all sounds a bit fluffy. And I wonder if that's a specific reason why it's extremely difficult to do these things with students. If you think about it, when, when all your mates are coming around knocking on your hall door and saying, hey, come on, let's go down to the pub. No, I'm spending time with myself. <laughs> or, oh, come on, we're going we're gonna to play some sport now. No, I'm just spending some time with me. It's all, it's all very Seinfeld, isn't it? And it's slightly weird. But actually, it's in that slight weirdness, which is great, that's where we actually find some time. Now, I think it's extremely obvious that we lose ourselves at university very much within the eyes of other people because we're trying to work out what someone said earlier on, which was a, a healthy self-image. 
So a lot of what we're trying to do is find ourselves, often through the eyes of other people. And as a result, we often play at ping pong with different people's ideas about what we should do with our time. And actually spend less time with ourselves and less time with God. Hands up if you feel like your prayer life has massively improved since you went to uni. Hands up. Oh, yeah, right, of course it has. Unless you became a Christian at uni. <laughs> okay, in which case, yes, okay, I'll give it to you. But often, students find that their prayer life, their personal prayer life, not their corporate prayer life, but their personal prayer life massively hits the rocks at uni. The reason is, how much time do you really have to spend alone with God? How much time do you really have? Now, I think one of the key steps for a healthy emotional well-being at university is actually spending time with God on your own. That's real time about finding out who you are and who he is. Rob. Okay, so quite a few ideas about keeping yourself emotionally healthy, and most of them do actually require some some action. And uh, I guess one of the things that we want to say with with mind and soul, the reason why we've got both of these things together is it's not just about praying harder or trying harder or um, going to see someone to get healing prayer or something like that. All of those things work and are important, but if those things are happening, you've also got to do something with that new information. So, for example, let's supposing you've, you've been forward at the end of the service for some prayer and your prayer is that your depression will be lifted, then... I think God is expecting us perhaps to do something different that next week. Um, if we're just sort of sitting around waiting for ourselves to feel a bit more positive or a bit more happy, that, that may not be what's required to actually get us to the next step. So we may actually have to go and think, well, what would I be able to do? What would I do? Or what could I do next week that I can't do at the moment? And if I get that prayer, then let's go and try and do that. So that's just a, a one-off thing. So what I want to do is talk a little bit about how the fact that the human mind tends to end up in vicious circles. So, for example, I'll talk about uh, a phobia I have, which is dancing at weddings. Okay, so I don't know if anyone's got a, a, a similar phobia. Um, I imagine, put your hand out if you've got a phobia, a spider, heights, something like that. If anyone hasn't got an phobia, I can induce one afterwards, okay, so, so we can work on that. But I've got a phobia of dancing at weddings, and um, what, what that means is that I tend to avoid going to weddings. So like, I'm one of the sad people who... Um, Quite, oh, don't worry about it. It's just my screensaver. You can see all my iTunes and things. Um, lots of famous people. Dr. John Maxwell. Awesome. Um, anyway, Josh Groban. Sorry about that one. Um, anyway, the, um, we, that means that I don't like going to weddings. So I tend to avoid going to weddings, or if I do go to weddings, and uh, certainly if you go back a few years, perhaps I go to weddings and have a couple of drinks or something like that. And if I have like, loads of drinks, I might go on the dance floor, or I might go on the dance floor for the last, song and I went you know I'd sort of all the speeches would be really cool and I, I'm one of the people who likes Kayleys and barn dances and stuff like that because then it's organized dancing and that's okay and I hate dancing with my shadow because I'm not very creative and also if I go onto a dance floor I'm absolutely convinced that everyone's looking at me and they can see that my feet are not dancing in time and I'm doing this really awful sort of dance like your dad kind of thing that happens okay so so I but my point is that if, if I go to a wedding, and um, I've got over this a little bit now because I've treated myself, and I'll tell you how I did that later. But um, if I go to a wedding, I feel awful in my body, so I feel n- tense and stressed, and I have all these thoughts that are probably not actually true, like everybody's watching me, I, my, my feet are out of time, that kind of thing. And my behaviour is either that I avoid perhaps even going to the whole wedding, or maybe actually I just avoid dancing and I'll go and hide over by the bar. I might do some kind of unhelpful behaviour, like have a few drinks and try and get my confidence up. Or I might sort of go in for one dance and do some real crazy moves or something like that, just to sort of get in there. And then I get off the dance floor. And when I go off the dance floor, I go, oh, thank heavens for that. No one's actually realised how awful my dancing was because it was YMCA, and everyone can dance YMCA. Okay? But my point is that in my body and in my mind and in my behaviour, there's all these kind of things going on, and I can end up only seeing one part of the coin. So because I'm convinced I'm really bad at, um, at dancing, I'll go in there, get in, get out as quickly as possible, and I get to the end, and I think, phew, thank heavens for that. The only reason that no one's worked out that I'm really, really bad at dancing is because I was really quick and I picked the right reading. Um, whereas in actual fact, I think probably, hands up if you don't particularly like dancing in public places. Okay, so about half of you, all right? So, so if we pursue that to its logical conclusion, that probably means that actually about half of you probably think a whole bunch of similar stuff to me if you're on a dance floor or something that everyone's looking at you. Whereas, you know, when was the last time you saw someone actually dancing badly at a wedding? 
Sorry, I mean, it's, it happens, yeah. Will, Will was at my wedding a few months ago, and it was me. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, thanks. Uh, <laughs> but my point is, is that if you continually avoid the situation, then what happens is that you never learn that the other side is true. So, for example, if you actually go onto the dance floor and actually get on with it, and particularly, maybe you just go on for the first dance. And um, I did this when we were on the honeymoon, actually. We were just, it was this big restaurant and they had a dance floor. And actually, my wife and I went up, and we were actually the first people on the dance floor. And that was the time I overcame my fear of dancing, was on my honeymoon. We were the first people on the dance floor, and everyone, rather than thinking who are they, they can't dance, they're not in time with the music. Everyone was actually thinking, wow, I wish I had the confidence they had to get up on the dance floor. And I had a wonderful time, and we had a great dance, and a whole bunch of other people came to join us on the dance floor. And the point I'm trying to make is that if we stick in our cycles of avoidance and we pay attention to these feelings in our body and we listen to these thoughts, then we believe a whole bunch of stuff that's only one side of the coin, i.e. the only reason that I haven't made a complete social dance, social um, embarrassment of myself because I haven't danced and the other side of the coin's actually not been looked at because we're avoiding dancing whereas if we actually get on with it and get out there and do some dancing then actually we realize that actually we're okay at it first of all we realize a whole bunch of other stuff's actually achieved, which is no one's watching who cares and actually there's a whole bunch of other people who are actually far worse dancers than us but we wouldn't have learned that we wouldn't have learned that unless we'd actually taken that step so so one of the things about um, you know, one of the reasons why it's important to love your mind is because it's really important to you and perhaps begin thinking about identifying some of those vicious circles that we have in ourselves that mean we tend to avoid stuff. And when we avoid stuff, then that's going to have negative. We feel anxious. We, we, we have a sort of anticipation of the wedding. We, we're, we're spending time after the wedding thinking, did I get away with it? Um, did anyone see me? Or, and it, I mean, I'm taking a stupid example about dancing at a wedding, but for other people, it's really serious stuff, like maybe starting a new friendship or um, maybe not going to university, first of all, or sitting at the back of the lecture theatre and trying to avoid being seen. Whereas unless we sort out these kind of things, it's going to have consequences for our mental health. And it's often fairly simple stuff. And uh, a lady called Susan Jeffers wrote a book called Face the Fear and Do It Anyway. And what she was sort of saying is as we actually face up to these things and do them, we actually realise that we've been listening to a whole bunch of lies and actually it's nowhere near as bad as that. Just to give you a bit of um, an outline of something personal, because I know sometimes you can sit there and think, oh yeah, these guys, they got it sorted. You know, after the London bombings, I had loads of panic attacks, and I've talked a bit p- quite publicly about that at Soul Survivor and, and the like, and, and quite a few people have had panic attacks as well, so you go, oh yeah, great, it's not just me who's going completely mad. Okay, and, and I, I remember kind of being outside and thinking about public transport. Now, the vicious circles that Rob's talking about are things like, Oh, I can't pos- I've got such a great sense of anxiety and foreboding. There's no way I can go on the tube again. Now, if you think about that behaviour, the belief is oh, I can't possibly go on the tube again. I've got such a deep sense of foreboding and anxiety in my body. I've got to stop going on the tube. So my behaviour is avoidance. Now, what the avoidance does, it reinforces the feelings of fear. Like, oh my goodness, if I go on a tube, it's definitely going to blow up. Now, as a result of that, the, the fear itself gets stronger. It's like the monster in the cupboard at the end of your bed when you're a kid. Now, if you, if you don't actually go into the cupboard and turn the light on with your dad, uh, then you won't, know, you won't know that there isn't a monster in the cupboard. But if you face your fear, you go into the cupboard, you turn on the light, you realise there's nothing to be afraid of. Now, the brain's very clever. It can create horrible pictures, but also it can be easily resolved. And it's really funny, isn't it, how chillers are much more frightening than horror movies. Like, a chiller, like, you know, some nasty kind of one where you can just see something bad happening in the distance, but you can't quite work out what it is, is much more frightening than some kind of gory monster where you're going, that's just plastic and synthetic. It's because your mind is better at creating frightening scenarios than, 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 than actually than the film is. Yeah? So, by facing your fears, by getting on the tube, I got over the fact that the tube was going to blow up. Now, I go on the tube all the time now, I don't really care, I don't even think about it, because I've actually habitualised my fear... And now I'm not afraid anymore. Now, as students, we, we have, because of the lifestyle, we have the choice to actually take ourselves out for avoidance really easily. Like, how hard is it, is it to skip a lecture, really? How hard is it not to go into college? How hard is it not to go to the bar? How hard is it not to go out to the club? If we want to, we can avoid everything and just become a little worm in our little hole and just hide away. And actually, some of you guys will be doing that and don't feel judged by that, but some of your friends will be doing that too. In your student rooms, there'll be someone on your corridor who never goes out. Now, 
you might all be going, oh, they're so antisocial. Oh, my goodness, they never come out. But actually, they might be shaking and quivering behind the door because they're so agoraphobic, they can't go out. Because they believe that everyone around them is going to say, oh, what a loser. They never go out. And actually, because you're all whispering about them saying how antisocial they are, they actually think that you're whispering about them going, oh, what a loser. So actually their fears are strengthened by the fact that they're not exposed. And exposure response um, prevention therapy is a very, very healthy one, a one we need to kind of use. That's useful, isn't it? Is that useful, sir? Long word. A long word. Exposure response prevention therapy. It means exposing yourself... Not exposing yourself in that kind of a way, <laughs> but exposing yourself to the fear, to the threat, okay, and stopping yourself from taking any avoidance. And then you, you feel less afraid. Have you seen it on TV? Someone's got a fear of spiders. They get a massive fat tarantula, stick it on their shoulder, stand there for an hour. The first five minutes, the guy's absolutely freaking out. The next ten minutes, he's absolutely freaking out. The next ten minutes after that, he's still freaking out. And then gradually, he kind of begins to calm down, and then he starts stroking the spider, and it's all all right. <laughs> they live happily ever after. So, so there's some important things to engage with, but uh, think about student avoidance as being really unhealthy. And I also want to say to you, don't believe how you feel. Now, in our society today, this is true, isn't it, Rob? Everyone is based around... I, I like to get him to back me up. Um, I think that in our society today, everyone's taught to believe their feelings. Trust your feelings, mate! Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, she's really hot. Go with your feelings. Okay? That's what people say, isn't it, all the time? Trust your feelings. Oh, yes, oh, it's definitely right for you. Yeah, oh, yes, how's your heart feel? Oh, go with it then. Okay? Oh, you're a Christian. Oh, no worries. Just go with your feelings. Okay? That, that's what we hear all the time. Go with your feelings. You see, when it comes to our mental health, often we have to say, no, I'm not going with the feelings. I'm not choosing to go with the feelings. Because often the feelings are fake. So actually the feelings of fear are not really feelings of fear that have a genuine basis. There's still feelings of fear, but if we choose to do everything dictated to our feelings, would we be functional? Imagine a world in which everyone did exactly what they felt. What a disaster. Actually, we shouldn't necessarily follow our feelings. And actually, Jesus has taught us, don't follow your feelings. Don't necessarily follow how you feel, but follow what you know is true. And bring everything under the Lordship of Christ. So your feelings have to be brought under the Lordship of Christ. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Self-control is one of them. Is that not also the application of, of, of de determination to work over and beyond your feelings, your desires, your impulses and your urges? So the impulse to run might be one that you overcome in a healthy way to help you uh, become more emotionally rounded. Okay, so we talked about, particularly with anxiety, type disorders, it's often around particular things, so there might be a, a, a sort of vicious circle of avoidance, the person not wanting to go out of their room because they uh, are prone to have panic attacks or uh, get lots of agoraphobic or very claustrophobic feelings, or it might be more of a social kind of thing, they might make a fool of themselves in, in, in some way. Um, you can also get these sort of depressive kind of cycles of avoidance, so, so the person the less you do, the more tired you get. I don't know if you've ever had the experience where you've gone home from unit and you sort of slept for the whole holidays, okay, and it's, it's really nice to sleep for the first three or four days, isn't it, but after a while you can actually sleep too much, and you actually suddenly, you know, you realise that actually a little bit of adrenaline is, is good for some things, and particularly one of the things that happens with depression is that, is that people can almost slow down, and depression is not just depression in your mind, clinical depression certainly is depression in your body, depression in your appetite, and people are just doing less and eating less and seeing less people, and all of a sudden there's nothing in the diary, and they're not going out and they're not seeing anyone and they're thinking, well, I haven't got any friends because no one's rung me. And actually it could be because they haven't rung anybody either. So there's very little social interaction. And one of the things that happens in depression is that you can get this sort of slowing down in life. So it could be that someone has sort of, you could notice they just kind of sort of dropped off the radar a little bit. And of course, when you first drop off the radar, that's the beginning of a slippery slope to actually really not doing very much at all and then before you, you know too much more it's gone a bit further and people are feeling very very depressed and that could be perhaps when they're either needing medication or or trying to harm themselves in some way but people dropping off the radar and entering those sort of vicious circles of reduced activity reduced contact so trying to sort ourselves out and trying to keep ourselves healthy is is really important and particularly depression and anxiety are more 
short-term kind of, kind of things. But one of the things I wanted to talk about a little bit was perhaps some of the relational problems that we have. And whether I am passionate about seeing emotionally healthy churches built up across the country. But emotionally healthy churches involves people who are sensible and wise and kind and compassionate for the right reasons. And I'm sure a lot of you will have met people who perhaps you wouldn't have said they were mentally ill but they were behaving in ways that were really quite damaging. So, for example, the person who insists on being the small group leader because they've got a big mouth. Not because they're the wisest person or the right person for it, but they're insisting on doing it because their self-esteem is somehow tied up in getting the acceptance of other people. Um, Or I'm thinking about other people, perhaps, who um, always seem to have a boyfriend. And they've had, like... Serial monogamy, sometimes we call it. You know, they just go from like sort of this boyfriend and then they break up and a week later they're going out with the next boyfriend and a week later they're going out with the next boyfriend. And it's almost as though they, they don't actually know how to be by themselves. And I was talking to one person who'd done this for like 10 years and she suddenly realised that she'd just broken up with the latest man and that she wanted to actually just go to the bar for a drink but she didn't know how to stand at the bar without someone else. She didn't, you know, where do I put my arm? What actually happens? How do I actually stand at the bar? And what we see is that a lot of people mask their, their, their problems. They're not necessarily depressed or they're not necessarily anxious, but they're behaving in, in really, really, really unhelpful ways. And often a lot of stress or pressure can, can make us do that. And having a boyfriend, a functional boyfriend, who, who sort of gives me the attention I need can be one of the ways to, to mask that. And I think this is where Christianity can be really, really helpful because if we're getting our identity from Jesus, then we shouldn't need that other person. We shouldn't need to have that role or that position. We shouldn't need to um, be valued by, by people. Now obviously it's really important that we have got friends around us and it's very useful that we use our time wisely and it's good to think about your career and stuff like that. But one of the things I see a lot of is people who almost have to do something. They're kind of undoing something from their childhood or they're sometimes they might be carrying on the generations from before. So, well, my father taught me never to show any emotion because his father before him you don't show emotion in our family and it goes back over generations and generations and generations or you see generational things coming down perhaps in patterns as to how we deal with food so for example maybe not actually anorexia as such but a very sort of extreme control kind of thinking about food and and lack of emotional freedom and responsiveness in the family so so that's i think where if we can actually understand some of the things that jesus had to say about how we relate to people how can we be kind and compassionate to each other and the bible is full of all kinds of amazing truths about that that will actually help us be emotionally normal and you know sometimes how you hear christians talking a lot about um evangelism or bible study or things like this and you sometimes just wish you know Actually, I just want to just talk to a really normal person. And wouldn't it be great if, if, if people could just be friends and we could just have some... You know, you heard Andrew Jones uh, in, in the previous session talking about family and community. And when I'm not talking about church small groups, I'm talking about family, okay? Well, that may be worked out through a cell, but it's not a cell structure. It's family and community and friendship. And people bringing things from their past into their relationships with other people can be really, really damaging. So we're quite passionate about helping people understand themselves, understanding their identity, understanding what the sorts of things that Jesus has got to say to us about our identity. And we're just going to talk a little bit about then perhaps with when we're healthy and when our relationships are healthy, how that helps us love our uni. Great. Guys, I just want to say that as a Christian, you should not feel any sense of shame whatsoever about having a mental health issue. Okay? I would say that everyone in their lifetime will have a mental health issue whether they realise it or not. We know that statistically one in four people will have a clinical mental health issue that will lead them to go and seek treatment. So it's really, really important that you don't feel like, oh, but I'm a Christian, I should never have a mental health issue. That would be like saying, I'm a Christian, I should never ever get ill at all, ever. Okay, that's just not realistic, it's not true, and it's not how things really are. As a church leader, I can tell you that in my church there should be, I hope that there are, Uh, And there should be more mentally unhealthy people than there are mentally healthy people. The reason for that is that that most people come to find Jesus at a point of weakness in their life, when actually Jesus is their last resort, because he's the healer, he's the saviour, and he's come to help and to heal and to save. So if they're not, then I'm doing something wrong. Jesus said, I've come to seek and save the lost, the poor in spirit, the broken. 
So he's come to rescue broken people, and I'm expecting that those broken people will have a mental health issue. Now, if you're struggling with one yourself, which you might be, maybe that's why you're here today, or if a friend's struggling with him, it's just not a, coi- a point for shame. It's not, it's not about shame. Jesus didn't come to say, but you're a Christian, you should be a smiley, happy person at the front of church, jumping around. You shouldn't be sad, you shouldn't be depressed. Of course, Jesus doesn't want us to be depressed. Of course, he doesn't want us to be sad. But he's come to heal and to restore us. Therefore, we have to engage with him in that journey of healing and restoration. What Rob's saying about community is essential. Because I find it really abhorrent that so much of the Christian community that I'm part of seems to be so fake. It's like, do you know what? Let's all sit around in a circle looking really complete like the kingdom has come and we're all in heaven right now and we've all got the right exegesis. That's what's important. Not the fact that your mum's just died and you're grieving. Not the problem that you've got with food. Not the problem that you have with sexual addiction. Not the problem that you have with pornography. Not the problem that you have uh, in your mind. That's, that's just not real life. Is that what Jesus did? Didn't he sit in the tent with loads of sinners, broken people, tax collectors and prostitutes and talk about addiction and talk about salvation and talk about restoration and talk about the kingdom of God? Wasn't that what he was about? Now, what we're looking for is emotionally healthy people in the 21st century. This isn't the 90s anymore. It's not about sex, money and power. It's not about driving fast cars or getting to the top of the chain. People need to engage with themselves and with God. Now, I believe in a church which is full of redeemed people who are on a journey to wholeness with Jesus the Saviour. We have something missional to say to a world which is full of broken and hurting people. If we're all sitting around there looking completely whole and completely perfect, how are we ever going to connect with a world full of people who are suffering from terrible neurosis, from terrible mental health problems, from terrible addiction, where even eating disorders are celebrated and modus operandi for models and for superstars? How on earth are we going to help a world full of sexual addicts? How are we going to help people if we can't say, yeah, you know what, I was there and, and actually through this process of engagement with Jesus the Saviour, I found wholeness. I'm on a journey of healing. This is what it's all about. Because I believe that this journey of emotional, mental, spiritual development, restoration and healing is missional. It's about the church. It's about what we do. It's like there's like a hundred miracles in your church next Sunday. It's, It's amazing. Spirit comes. People are healed. People in wheelchairs are standing up. People with broken legs are kicked their casters off. They're jumping around, singing happy day. But they're all sitting down and no one's talking about it. No, no, there's no miracles here. No, nothing happened. No, he could walk already. Oh, no, he could see. I'm sure he could see. <laughs> you could see, couldn't you? It would be like that. That's what happens every week in our churches. People are healed spiritually and emotionally and mentally. Yet everyone's going, oh, no, I'm sure I didn't have a mental health problem. No, no, I was completely fine. No, really, I was. Okay? It's like, let's deny that and pretend that we're all 100% sorted out, apart from if, you know, if you're blind and now you can see. Now, let's engage with that, because it is missional. First of all, if I can just sort of um, pub that out with an illustration from, from, from um, Scripture. Um, you often hear speakers say this, so I'm, I'm not going to say it. Um, Peter is not my favourite apostle. Okay, You know, you hear those people say, well, actually, Peter was my favourite apostle because he kept putting his foot in it and he kept being stupid. He wasn't my favourite. Another one's my favourite. But, but Peter's really good because he was an idiot. Have to come and ask me later. He, he was an idiot so much a lot of the time, and, and he would always sort of you know, confess Jesus one moment and deny him the next moment and refuse to believe that Jesus was ever going to do the whole Easter thing. But of course, one of the biggest things that Peter did was he denied Jesus. And he was there um, denying him three times in the temple courtyards. And then the cock crowed. And what made it even more awful was that Jesus had told him this was going to happen. And then Jesus catches up with him at the end of John, in John 21. And he asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And... You know, it says in the text that Peter was deeply hurt because basically Jesus was rubbing salt in the wound. And Jesus was saying to him, Peter, you are a broken man. I need to remind you of your brokenness before I can give you the job of being the chief shepherd on the rock on which I'm going to build my church. And he says, the reason that you're going to be the chief shepherd is because you were the chief sinner. 
Because sometimes we hear a whole bunch of people who say, ah, you've got a problem, you need to go and find Jesus. And we are pointing people to the cross. But we should never be pointing people to the cross. What we should be doing is we should be saying to people, come to the cross where I am, because I have never left the foot of the cross. I am Peter, I am the chief sinner, I'm still very much here. And this is where I have found hope, and this is where I have found healing. So Peter is restored by Jesus, but in the context of personal failure, and in the context of sitting at the foot of the cross. And also, this was the guy who betrayed Jesus pretty much. He, he disobeyed Jesus, he ran away, he left the other 11 disciples. And it's, it's a wonderful little verse, just in Acts, Acts chapter 2, right at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, where it says, Peter stood up with the other 11 and addressed the crowd. So not only has Jesus restored Peter into his own relationship with God, he's restored Peter into relationship with the other 12 apostles who probably hated him for betraying them and causing all these kind of problems. And that's kind of the perspective that we've got to reach out to people from, is that we are broken, but we've been restored, and we've been restored into our community. We've been accepted despite our scars, despite our stupidity. So, for example, to, to say, well, actually, yeah, I, I still get depressed sometimes or I still get panicky sometimes, or I still hurt other people because I still have issues, and I understand that some of those kind of things go on, but Jesus loves me anyway, Jesus has restored me anyway, I'm on a journey of healing, and if we can get that kind of message out there, and actually be open about our emotional nature, but as Will was saying, let's not be accepting of our emotional issues, let's not go parading our eating disorders, or I'm off to the clinic, or who is it, I mean, I was reading Hello magazine, and everyone's just come out of rehab, and is, you know, they're almost celebrating their alcohol dependency, we shouldn't be doing that, but neither should we be sort of hiding it away, because actually Jesus is very open about the fact that he works with sinners, and he works with broken people. Yeah. Guys, we just, you know, we've, we've been speaking very generally, what I'm saying is that on minusoul.info, we've got loads of specific resources for different issues, um, suicide, self-harm, eating disorders, um, all sorts of addictions, depression, anxiety, more serious and enduring mental health issues. Now, I, I encourage you to go on there, not least for yourselves, but also to keep an eye open. We, will, we haven't got enough time. We were going to say something about keeping an eye out for your friends too. But we've got some information on there about how to make referrals, uh, what a GP would say to you if you need to go, what questions you need to ask yourself. Um, we've got links to some other ex exceptionally good res online resources. And we're actually producing a course as well called the Mind and Soul course, which is going to be coming to a church near you in the new year, and there'll be more information on the website. And that's a kind of emotional healing and wholeness course, which is endemically Christian, but also uh, in incorporates lots of very helpful psychological tools. So we encourage you to engage with that as well, but do connect up with us on the website. Now, we wanted to do a bit of Q&A for the last 10 minutes or so. Um, it would probably be useful to keep these very, very as specific as possible, realising that we're in the room, don't feel judged, but if you've got a question you'd like to ask me or Rob, maybe you could say, I'd like to ask you this or that or the other. So let's have a bit of Q&A. It can be as specific as you like and can be as material or meaty as you like or as ethereal as you like, if you're feeling very <laughs> zen. I'm sorry it's so hot. Yeah, sorry it's so hot. <sighs> Fan the person next to you. <laughs> okay, any questions? Hands up. Questions? Any questions? Yes? Um, I've got a friend at uni who I kind of barely knew, um, and she kind of had a rough month, literally last month, like her, her brother died, and then one of her best mates committed suicide. And she came to me, which was kind of cool, and sort of a miracle in itself. Um, but like, as a Christian, like how, what do you do to help someone like that? Like, they're kind of dead, just like... Um, okay. Sure. Okay. Sure. I'll just repeat the question. So this guy's got a friend at uni. He's come to him. Brothers died. Friends committed suicide. They're in a bad, bad place. What do you do uh, to support them in that first instance? Rob. I'll tell you what you... What, 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 what don't you do, um, I think, is almost as important as what you do do. So uh, one, of the, one of the things we've got on, on the website is a couple of articles written by a lady who's... Uh, whose husband has suffered from severe depression. And these are some of the things that Christians have said over the years. So, for example, one of the things you don't say is, oh, how are you feeling? You know, because that's probably like, well, pretty crap, really, to be honest. Um, you know, you know that, so is that really a helpful question? Um, so I, what I would say is don't say, oh, how are you feeling? I mean, I think one of the things we have been saying is, um, you know, do if someone is a bit low, do take notice of that fact, but maybe going up and saying, how are you feeling? 
um, or you don't look very well today. Or, you know, what might be better to do is, is to take a far more natural approach and just say, is there anything I can help with? Uh, or do you need a hand with anything this week? I'm going shopping. Would you like me to get some stuff for you? So real, real simple kind of stuff and not sort of going in and just putting the... I mean, like, for example, most people with low self-esteem know they have low self-esteem. You don't say to them, did you know? I think you might have low self-esteem. Because... Because it's really not very helpful. And likewise, you know, most people who are concerned about their weight know they are concerned about their weight. You don't need to sort of raise it on the agenda. It's there on the agenda already. So I would just be saying real simple kind of things like, um, I'm going to the cinema this week, would you like to come? Making people feel included, uh, not trying to do amateur counselling, um, listen, just sit there with a cup of tea. It doesn't, you know, you have two ears, one mouth, all that sort of thing. Just, just listening to people, listening more than you're saying something. Because I think a lot of people feel very de-skilled in that situation here i mean suicide i mean uh, what do you do when someone's committed suicide i mean what do you say there's nothing you can say and i think people say oh well i ought to say something i ought to go on a course to to learn what to say you know I, this is what i do all the time i spend my entire job pretty much dealing with people who are suicidal there is nothing you can learn to say that's right there just isn't and, and maybe just sort of saying, would you like to come to the cinema, or do you fancy a cup of tea, or something like that, and just including people can be really important. I was just going to say as well, you mentioned about praying with people. Another thing that I think is quite unhealthy, we've, we've got this idea, right, that someone comes to us and they're in a bad state, this is when we give them the gospel. And it's like, someone's coming to you, and they're feeling broken and fragile, someone when their family died, and they're, they're, they're saying, look, will you pray for me? And suddenly it's like, did you know that Jesus is your Lord and Saviour? Come to the cross. That's where you'll find its healing and restoration at this difficult time in your life. Okay, it's generally not the best time uh, to be telling someone the gospel in that kind of a way. It's a time to live the gospel. Okay, and that's a really important distinction to make. It's a time to live the gospel, then not to bash someone with the gospel in their moment of of need. If you love them like Christ loved them, then they'll get to know Jesus through that journey with you, and there'll be a time when they say, "Hey, look, um, amazing! Like you helped me through that time. Tell me a bit more about your faith." That's really important. Also, praying with is really important. If someone says, look, I'd like to pray with you, great. If you say, look, if if there's a time when you want to pray, I'm here to pray with you. Saying, let's spend some time in prayer. In the Bible it says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, bring your request to God. Thank you that my friend knows that, and we now pray that you would understand that and take that on. Okay, that's not helpful either. So, um... So we have that, yeah, I hear that sort of thing. Oh, you're depressed. And you know in the Bible it says, be joyful about everything and in anything. In every circumstance, even in your suffering. Okay? Uh, I hear that one too. It's not great, you know, generally. So avoid that. You know, if you're going to pray, remember people who are depressed often have short attention spans. I have a short attention span as well, if you're going to pray with me for a really long time. Um, so just keep your prayers nice and short. Jesus hears them and say, Lord, I just want to bless my friend. Pray you'd be present with them right now. And that's it. Amen. Okay, it's just really important. Hi. Um, do you think things like you can self-harm are a sin? Do I think eating disorders and self-harm as a, are a sin? You know what? I think sin is endemic to our nature as a result of the fall. Therefore, if I said to you that, do I think that eating and self-harm are sin? Yeah, I'd say that they're sin in the same way that all of our fallen and brokenness is sin. Do I think that we should isolate them as being sin when they're also symptom? I don't necessarily think so. A lot of people with eating disorders and people who are self-harming are not choosing to have an eating disorder. They're not choosing to self-harm actively in a sense that they're going, yippee, I'm going to sin against the Lord by, by cutting myself. That's not actually how it works. They're actually self-harming because it's symptomatic of their inner pain and turmoil. Therefore, I think Jesus would treat them with deep compassion now, in the same way, lots and lots of our sin, whatever it is, is often a <coughs> result of our sinful nature, in a sense. But specifically, that is symptom. So it would be, in a way, like saying, someone who's got a virus and is now really spotty, uh, the spots in themselves are sinful. If someone's got mumps, they've got spots on their body, they've got a virus inside them, and, and, and saying that someone who's self-harming, in a sense, that that self-harm is a reason to sort of for con- condemnation is not... I don't think true, but it's a difficult and complex theological question which has kind of two answers. Yes, of course self-harm is wrong, like suicide is wrong, but it's very much symptomatic of an inner state, which is a broken and fallen state. 
Therefore, we have to love the person holistically, particularly in self-harm and in eating disorders. It's really important that the person feels loved by God in their entirety. And if their affliction is also earmarked as being sinful, then they're not going to get better. You can imagine loads of anorexics all together and someone going around saying, you know, you terrible sinner, terrible sinner, I can't believe you're doing this to yourself. Don't you know God wouldn't want it? I don't think that's going to be a way of resolution. Let's just have one more question. Yeah, I was going to say, we've just got to give you time to get to the next seminar. So one more question. Come on, no pressure. Last question of the day. Make it really great. <laughs> one more question. Let me just close with a story perhaps looking at that whole issue of sort of whose responsibility it is. Um, there's a story in John 5 about a guy who's lain by a pool for 38 years and uh, when the, 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 this pool is a miraculous pool. When the waters are stirred, you can jump in and you'll get healed. And he's laying by the side of this pool. And there's a number of different ways to sort of read that story. You, you can come to that story in a very accusational kind of way, which is like, this guy's lain here for 38 years. You know, you'd have thought by now he'd have worked out a way to get a few coins together and pay someone to sort of chuck him into the water. And let's face it, if you read the story in John 5, Jesus' first question to him is, well, do you want to get well or what? And surely the guy must be on a benefit scam or something like that. He's sitting there, you know, and you can come at the story from that point of view and you can say, it's his responsibility, he needs to sort his life out and he needs to get well. Or you can come at the story from a different point of view, which is Jesus says to him, I've taken the time to come and talk to you. Um, forget the pool. Have a miracle. Be zapped. Okay? Walk. Pick up your mat. Walk. All that kind of stuff. It, it, it all kind of happens. Um, and and, and it, it's that sort of, you know, God's going to come and give us a fix and God's going to miraculously take away all these problems. But actually, the, the, the John 5 story is more complex than that. It's a partnership between the guy and Jesus. Jesus does say, does say to him, do you want to get well? But he also specifically says to him, pick up your mat and walk. I've given you a miracle, but you need to take the first step, which is to pick up your mat and walk. Jesus then follows him to the temple, and a few days later says to him, I'm really pleased that you're at the temple and you're now walking, but actually there's some other stuff in your life you need to sort out as well. And if you read the story, what you actually see is that it's a partnership in John 5 between Jesus and this person, between the miraculous and our personal responsibility. So I think that's kind of the approach I take, is that, Yes, it is our responsibility, but we need to be walking alongside people. And maybe, hey, it's also God's responsibility to be working and, and healing his, his church. He's got some responsibility there as well. Guys, thanks so much for your time and attention. Um, do have a look at our website, www.mindandsoul.info. There's some cards around if you want to take one. And um, if you've enjoyed this seminar and you want more next year, maybe we could go into a bigger room. Uh, you might want to make those uh, thoughts known. Thanks so much.